This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by In-N-Out Burger. Yes. Franklin, yes. we are in the Golden State, the People's Republic of California, and we are having In-N-Out Burgers today. What is, uh, what's your what's your go-to on In-N-Out Burger? If I may say before I get into all that, is I was flying into LAX, nighttime, soaring in, just dip right into the clouds, right before we touched down, and there was a glowing In-N-Out Burger right beside the airport welcoming. You know, it's a welcome mat. Yeah, it was, it's a beautiful thing. So, of course, I am going with the cheeseburger animal style. There is no other way to, to order, quite frankly. Um, and then I like to just get a fry and a, and a Coca-Cola. Keep I, it standard otherwise. I love the traditional double-double, but, you know, In-N-Out Burger has this mystique that, you know, you the locals have this own little language and they order stuff that's kind of not on the menu and there's kind of this urban myth around it and you can upgrade. When I think of that, I think of Carson Chandler because if you know who to ask in the right language, they have a three by three burger, which is three patties, the Carson Chandler Deluxe Burger. Wow, I think they have a four by four too, yeah. That would be, he would have to go to a hammock after that, that would yeah. be bad. Yeah. So yeah, so we're out in California. Franklin, why are we in California? Well. Donald Trump descended out in Florida. Our and home office. It was right across the street from our home office in Orlando. Literally, probably could have thrown a rock and, and hit in the rally. And then uh, we have the Dems uh, descending on us all, jumping airplanes coming down to Miami. So we are for their, no, for their first big debate, right? Yeah. So the whole presidential elections show, road show, came to Florida this week. And you and I, being sane people, got the hell out of Dodge. We went as far as we could in the continental U.S., and here we are in greater Los Angeles. So eating our In-N-Out burgers, what could be better? Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the California field office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Los Angeles, California, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, apprenticeships and workforce development are getting big headlines these days, not just from policymakers, but from the private sector as well, and none more so than the restaurant and hospitality sector. Rob Gifford from the National Restaurant Association Education Foundation joins us to talk about the industry's leadership in this space. And the president officially launched his re-election campaign this week, and he erased any doubt, as if any existed, that immigration enforcement will be the foundational building block of his campaign. What does that mean for operators in the short run and the industry in the long run? We'll take a look at that. And the biggest industry union vote in a generation is getting closer out on the West Coast. We'll bring you up to speed on the state of play out there. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. So Franklin, we talk a lot on this podcast about workforce development and what's going on in the employment workplace. And we talk about, you know, disruption coming and automation, how do workers stay relevant in the new economy and so forth. And we also talk on a different track about the industries that we work in, in terms of the restaurants and hotels and retail and entry level employment, about what those industries are doing in the workforce development space. And it seems like Everyone is talking about workforce development. The White House, Department of Labor, Congress, state legislatures, industries themselves, the trade associations we work with, National Restaurant Association, American Hotel and Lodging Association. Franklin, a lot going on in this space right now. They're all talking about it because it's political gold. It is public affairs gold. And, you know, there's no quicker way to get on stage with a mayor, with a governor, with a policymaker than to be putting young people on the career path. 
that's that's peered in a story. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, or otherwise. And so that's why everyone is in this space. That's why President Trump has made it a priority, at least rhetorically, of his administration. That's why all the Democrat candidates are out on the debate trail, campaign trail, making it priorities in their speeches, upskilling apprenticeships. This is in the tip of everyone's tongues right now. So you, you brought up the key word apprenticeships, and I've heard apprenticeships from this administration more than probably any other administration I've you know combined. They have been really talking about this from day one. And the National Restaurant Association has been seriously working in this space for a long time. And it seems like they're doing a lot of really good things in this space. You had the opportunity to sit down with Rob Gifford, a longtime friend of mine and friend of ours, who is in charge of all this for the National Restaurant Association Education Foundation. And you sat down with him last week in Washington and had a vigorous conversation about what the industry's doing. Yeah, and we'll get right into that. But, you know, just to tee it up, the Trump administration has been kind of redoing the apprenticeship program for two years now, and they're finally getting that out the door. That has not slowed down the industry. Uh, the NRA Ed Foundation, HLA Ed Foundation, and, and others have been hard at work for more than five years, probably closer to even 10 years. They have been these different ladders within the industry, and they are starting to roll all that out. And so we have Mr. Gifford on to walk us through all those uh, that ladder of opportunity. So let's go to that interview. Happy to be here at the National Restaurant Association Education Foundation, and we are joined by longtime friend of the uh, podcast, Rob Gifford, Executive Vice President, to talk about apprenticeships. Rob, how you doing? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. And apprenticeships, it seems like it's on the tip of the tongue of everyone these days. President Trump's talking about it. I heard on CNN this week, Elizabeth Warren was out in the campaign talking about apprenticeships. This is a hot topic. Tell us about what the National Restaurant Association is doing in this space and and really just what y'all are up to on, on that front. Happy to. First, just at a, at a high level, apprenticeships are, are, are really important. Uh, they're, they're important to us as a nation because we have a need to be able to advance our, our workforce. It's particularly important to the restaurant industry where we all know that there are amazing career paths, but they're not necessarily as well known as we would like them to be. And part of apprenticeship is really just helping the uh, both the current and the future workforce of the restaurant industry see that you can have not only an amazing first job, but an amazing career uh, working with restaurants. Uh, from a public policy perspective, it's been important to us to be connected to this effort. And um, a couple of years ago, President Trump put together really a call for action to reform the apprenticeship system to talk about how to improve it. Apprenticeship, as you know, for many, many years has been dominated by uh, the construction trade, some of the, some mm-hmm. of the, some of the, some of the unionized segments of the economy. And, and, and you really want to help figure out how we could do a better job of bringing apprenticeship ideas into the 21st century and into industries that have um, not always embraced apprenticeship previously because of some of the obstacles and some of the barriers. We're happy to be part of that effort, along with a lot of other industries. Came out with some recommendations about a year ago uh, on how to uh, really um, kind of revise and expand apprenticeships in, in exciting ways around the country, and uh, that effort is, is is ongoing. The Ed Foundation, in addition to that, we do have our own apprenticeship initiative, which we're super proud of, and it's uh, to really bring line employees to manage 
manager ranks over a structured period of time, either to become a restaurant manager or a lodging manager through a combination of on-the-job training and then related instruction to help them learn the competencies and skills they need in order to become uh, certified managers and advance their careers. And let, let's let's dig into that a little bit. So that is a program right now that you are offering. And if there are employers out there that are saying, you know, that that sounds great, Rob. I, you know, I want to participate in that. I want to get some of my younger workers that I want to get them on that management track and to that, you know, forty-five, fifty-five, seventy-five thousand dollar a year job, that American middle class management job. How do they reach out to you? How do they get enrolled in that program? What does that look like in terms of the mechanics of the program? Sure. They can you know, contact us at the National Restaurant Association Education Foundation. Uh, ChooseRestaurants.org is, is our web URL. You can find out a lot more information about the program there. And yes, employers are participating right now. We have apprentices in 44 states. We've already had our first graduates. We've seen people whose wages have increased by more than 60% wow. as, as a re- result of this, this program. And so we're really excited. Basically, at, at a high level, uh, we have mapped out the competencies you need to be a restaurant manager. There's over over 100 of them. We work with you as employers to kind of match your uh, employee training that you have right now against that competency checklist. If you have any gaps in your training, we help you get the incremental uh, learning instruction you need in order to offer your employees. We do a little bit of paperwork and then you start to put uh, the employees that you choose on a pathway where somewhere between six months and 24 months, kind of depending upon the pace and the individual, they can learn those competencies, master them, and then uh, be certified as a restaurant manager. And you mentioned that y'all are here as kind of support staff to help with, with the paperwork and everything related to that and matching up the curriculum. Are there funds available for employers that participate in this program as well? Uh, yes, and there is about $1,000 per apprentice that we can uh, provide in almost all cases to to help with the uh, cost of the related training and instruction. And then depending upon the state that you're in, quite often there are state level uh, incentives uh, that we can connect you with to further kind of sweeten the pot um, and, and make apprenticeship uh, not only great for recruitment and retention of your workforce, but also um, a little bit more financially advantageous to you as well. Gotcha. So it could be another thousand or two or three thousand dollars at the state level. Uh, yeah, against, depending, yeah, depending on the state. Yes. Yeah. And that may not seem like a lot of money at first blush, but if you're going to be training these folks anyway, right, mm-hmm. then, you know, to get that offset. And quite frankly, I, I would think it's also a good way to check your own training program against kind of national standards and see where you stand up. So I, I think there's some value probably for the employer there as well. Correct. We've had a lot of smaller employers who maybe have not had a an in-house management training program kind of fully baked, and, and, and this has been able to assist them. But I want to take it up in a couple levels here. And, uh-huh. and we have huge challenges in industry, right? We have over we have a million uh, vacant positions that exist. Uh, we we don't always have the greatest perception as being a a, a place for a career, and if brands can uh, you know do just a little bit better job with their retention, with their stickiness, with the with the workforce that they've got, a little bit better job with recruitment, they can be that much stronger in in meeting their goals. And so apprenticeship is important not only for the the individual who's getting that management level training, but it's really important for the company because it allows them to turn back around and showcase the fact that they are committed to advancing their workforce. And and we're seeing apprenticeship embraced by a lot of leading brands around the country because they understand that as a recruitment and retention tool, it goes way beyond the apprentice. And it goes to show them as a compassionate employer 
dedicated to advancing their employees and it shows them that there are career paths within that company and within this industry to be excited about. That's great. And just kind of building on that, put the apprenticeship program into the larger context of the work at the NRA Ed Foundation because it syncs with programs kind of at the bottom and then programs at the top to really take an employee from, you know, day one walking in off the street to becoming a restaurant executive, right? Yes. At At the foundation, we talk about our challenge and really our mission is to attract and to empower and to advance the restaurant workforce. And we do that in three ways. Attract is really about messaging about the opportunities in this industry because we've got a great story to tell and somebody needs to tell it. They need to tell it over a long-term sustained period of time. Empowering really is providing those hands-on initial training tools that individuals need to have the skills required to enter the industry. So whether that's our ProStar program, which is a high school-based program, training over 150,000 kids right now, whether that's our Restaurant Ready program, which is working with Opportunity Youth and the formerly incarcerated in cities around the country. We have a lot of hands-on training initiatives to get people in the door for that first formative work experience in restaurants. And then once they're in the door, we can connect them to apprenticeship to pull them up along the pathway in the industry and move them from restaurant professional to restaurant supervisor, to restaurant manager, and and, and advance them as they go, advancing their learning, advancing their earnings, and advancing their career satisfaction. That's great. Well, it's excellent work. It's important work. We need it within the four walls of the restaurants. As you mentioned and as we've touched on, it's critically important in terms of getting out there and telling our story, our story of opportunity. So thanks for joining us and, and thank you uh, thank you for all the good work you're doing. Give us that um, URL one more time where, where folks can go to find out about the apprenticeship program and all these other programs. www.chooserestaurants.org. All right, thank you, sir. Thank you, Franklin. Wow, that Franklin, that was a, a very good interview with Rob. I, what I was struck by a couple pieces. One was all the different moving parts of the program that can speak to different aspects of the industry. And the second part I was struck by was the accessibility from the average restaurant owner. You don't have to be Outback or Darden to be involved in this. You can be independent guy you know, in the middle of nowhere and you have access to this program and this kind of assistance. And so it, it, it seems like that piece of the organization when it comes to this apprenticeship thing is really firing on all cylinders. Yeah, and for me, you need these folks trained up well so that they stay with you and so they, they produce a good product, that they're, they're good in the dining room. And the industry needs some standardization so that these investments that everyone's making is, is and training and, and skills creation is portable. And so for all those reasons, we, we got to be doing this anyway, bottom line. And we can do it and gain a lot of credibility with elected officials in the process. And so it's good inside the four walls of the restaurant. It's gold outside the four walls of the restaurant. If we could, if we could get over the hurdle of incorporating our le- the industry's legislative and political agenda around opportunity apprenticeship, we, we would finally be cracking the code. I'd rather have a conversation about minimum wage or paid leave or scheduling through the lens of what that does to those students and how that helps create slots for those students or diminish openings for those students. What's the impact on that process? And we may win or lose some of those arguments, but I'd rather have that conversation than what's the minimum wage and who's going to do my P&L? What's the paid leave thing going to do? Because we're getting our brains beat out on that issue and we, we keep running our head against the wall. I mean, think about if, if our industry could ever be viewed as, you know, 
a, a, a jobs training classroom for, for young people. If you were at a Votech school, you know, the city council would not be mandating a paid leave policy for those students. They would not be restri- you know, restricting your ability to schedule classes for those students because they're students in the school of workforce development. If we can start having that conversation or, or drifting toward that conversation, you know, you said political goal, that's political. That's the conversation that we can win ultimately in the long run. And I've heard you say this before, that then you're having a conversation with policymakers as their workforce development partner, not as a special interest group that only shows up with pitchforks when they're getting ready to get another mandate shoved down their throat. That's a whole different paradigm. Good work, uh, Mr. Gifford, and uh, anyone that's interested should reach out and, and get educated in this program. So Franklin, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we, uh, you and I are basically political refugees fleeing the Sunshine State as the Trump campaign set up shop across from my, our offices. And then the Democrats are heading to Miami to have their powwow to kick off their whole process. And so we, we fled west. But there were a couple uh, things that the industry should take away. Uh, we'll talk about the Trump announcement. A big piece of what he was talking about was immigration. Of course, it's his core well, issue. His it core... was Tuesday, after all. <laughs> yeah. He made a lot of very specific, quote-unquote, policy points and followed it up with his usual, you know, 4 a.m. tweet storm. What should operators be concerned about with regard to his core issue, his core promise to his his crew about immigration? So what he said at his re-election launch, I mean, we, you know, I hate to talk about immigration again because we talk about this every week, it seems like, but we have to because— the President of the United States announced in the launch of his re-election campaign that there will be a sweeping ICE raid. National ICE raid. He said next week. Now, you know, we don't know. That may slide in. And there were no details really provided in what this ICE raid will exactly be and what we'll look at. I think millions was thrown around in terms of the number of deportations, and I think ICE officials immediately walk that back. But the point being, there's a raid coming of some sort, of some kind, and I think we can just expect, particularly with the political appointees that have been shoehorned in there in the, in the past couple of weeks, that we're going to have multiple raids. We're going to have a lot of raids, and some of those are going to take the form of workplace raids, which are great for TV cameras and great for earning headlines. And we know that the Trump administration is going to be interested in looking tough on this issue. One way they're going to do that is potentially going to put employers in the crosshair. So we keep beating this drum. Be on your P's and Q's. Be in full compliance. Understand this is this is out there. This is an external reality. Be prepared to handle any situations when they arise. But we have to mention again because the president gave it such prominent airtime in you know one of his more important speeches of the year, really. So this is about politics. This is about you know his political base, and this is their their red blood, red meat issue, Franklin. If I were, if you were an operator and you heard this, where would you be most worried? Geographically, we've seen the Trump administration attack sanctuary cities in the okay. past. I think it's safe to say that those are going to be targets. You know, I, I also would be worried though about we already have a crunch on you know workforce. Like we can't hire enough people. If let's say ICE was successful in deporting quote millions of people, <laughs> I think that would only exacerbate an already tight labor market. I think that's that's fair to say. So that's obviously another impact. The third thing is, you know, you just got to have your paperwork in order. If you're using E-Verify, that's great. 
you know, if you're not, you just need to make sure you're working with your, your team to make sure you're in full compliance. And, and it's political. So he's going to go after big blue states. He's going to go after California, New York, Illinois, Connecticut, New Jersey, the usual suspects. And probably big scalps too. But, you know, big brands that, but, you know, we'll see how that plays out. And they'll find a couple hundred or maybe a couple thousand uh, illegal workers and it'll be a big show. And they'll claim victory and go home. Undocumented workers the proper term but yeah go undocumented workers thank you for the correction yeah. I, yeah i want to be you know but it, it'll it'll be wall-to-wall news and it will be a political win no matter what he will spin it into a political win but a lot of our brands could be caught up in that process and you remember he is agnostic when it comes to coming after big corporate brands on this particular subject so i would I, you know sometimes operators go well we're you know we're corporations and they're friendly with us and blah 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 wrong you get your paperwork in order now yeah, I mean Don Donald Trump just a been crushing AT and T lately. Ford has been a regular target. I mean, you know the tech companies are a pinata. So you know he is not afraid to lean into some corporate brands. And if it if it's going to win him re-election, guess what? You're you're going to be in the crosshairs. So Franklin, uh, we just want to update our listeners on an ongoing process that we've been marking and following very closely, which could be the first big unionization exciting, activity. Yeah. I mean, exciting. you know, for, for, for labor geeks like us, this is kind of like a, you know, Super it's a playoff long. game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is fascinating. What's going on with Little Big Burger out here on the West Coast up in Oregon. Franklin, where, where are we? Again, remind us where the timelines are, where yep. we are in the process and how this is how this is playing out. So our listeners will remember the corporate brand Little Big Burger sprung an ambush election on the union usually works the other way. Interesting tactic. First time I think it's probably ever been employed in the restaurant industry. But the the corporate chain demanded essentially a, a two-week election to be held in all the locations in Oregon, and that's 13 locations. The union was hoping for union recognition in one location in around Portland. So they went to the NLRB, they made their arguments, and the chain was wanting the election to be held. I think it was the 13th, 14, 15, or 14, 15, 16, 3 to 5 in the afternoon, and the union was saying, that's during final exams, you know, that doesn't work. So anyway, the NLRB got a settlement agreement struck between the union and the company, and here is what that agreement looks like. So there will be an election held. It will be held July 1st by mail ballot. And the ballots will be counted July 23rd in the regional NLRB office. The bargaining unit will be 12 of those 13 locations in Oregon. I don't know why the one location was tossed, but you know the chain wanted to expand this to a bunch of other locations thinking that it had support in a number of the other locations and and one in that front it got the vote delayed but not by a whole lot and the union got the mail-in piece which was important to them because you know theoretically everyone will have a couple weeks to kind of participate in the process Whew, interesting stuff so we basically have what almost amounts to a system-wide election within a state of a burger chain this is this is big stuff the the last time I can remember anything close to this was the Jimmy John's election in the Minneapolis area that was like close to 10 years ago. So this is big stuff. Franklin, this is, this is exciting. This is like this, again, this, it's our playoff game, but it reminds me going back, you know, back in time during the 2000 Bush Gore 40 day recount vote siege. I was at Darden at the time and we were sending food 
every night into the, the headquarters of all the players and they were eating Olive Garden and Red Lobster and everything else we had. We were wearing out our Tallahassee restaurants. This is back in 2000. If you're the head of Little Big Burger, you send in some food over to the NLRB regional office. You Absolutely send- not. <laughs> that would be... Is that a little burger bribery? 100% unlawful. Um, yes, you can't. You can't. No. No, sir. No, sir. A little more flexible, I think, in the... Uh, and the campaign trail. No, there's very, there's very clearly defined rules around this. You, you know, you can't threaten, interrogate, promise. You can't. There's a, there's a whole. It's very rigid for good reason. It's protecting the worker. You know, this is a balance to protect the worker from undue influence from the employer or from the union, and obviously protect the the agency in the process as well. But yeah, it's going to be exciting. I mean, this is this will be studied. You know, these tactics will be studied. This election will be studied. If the union wins, it will be huge. It will be ground-shaking. If the employer wins, I think you'll probably see more employers in the restaurant sector employing these, these tactics. We'll keep you posted. July 1, put it in the calendar. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And as always... We start with wages. Uh, we're going to go with Joe Renzel. We're going to go to the DC bubble, but without Bubble Boy. So, Franklin, can you pinch hit for Mr. Renzel? I will try. So, House Democrats have been talking about a $15 an hour minimum wage for some time. It looks like they have whipped the votes. It looks like the vote will now be scheduled sometime shortly after July 4th, maybe that week of, I think, July 8th. So, Expedited time frame now. They're feeling feeling confident. They've got a little bounce in their step. The other thing I'd note is uh, President Trump was asked about this late on Thursday, and basically he did not say he would veto it. You know, he did kind of the traditional kind of Trump thing, which was, ah, you know, I've raised the minimum wage already, thousands of jobs, blah, blah, blah. You know, most Republican presidents would kind of outright say, done, dead on arrival. So it was just interesting that he didn't immediately kill it. So switching to where all the bubble people go to the beach, Delaware, some uh, interesting and unexpected unexpected uh, activity this week. Well, it was unexpected that there was a $15 an hour minimum wage measure flying through the legislature right at the kind of end of session, and now unexpectedly it is derailed. I think it is expected that Delaware will take their time with an issue like this, and that's what they've traditionally done, and it looks like that's what they're going to do now. They're, they're freaked out. It's going to be too much too fast, and the cost of their budget and all that, so they're hitting pause. And, and the state, they, they adjourn next next week. Next weekend, they adjourn for the year, so it looks like that's run out of steam for the year. came out of nowhere and then ended almost as fast as it started. Yeah. So... Uh, some activity that on, on an issue we've been following since last year in Michigan, Franklin. The governor got in, engaged this week. Yeah, she has uh, voiced disappointment with this the, the whole time, but now is officially jumping in the lawsuit. Um, you'll remember uh, the repubs right before they left office essentially canceled out a, a ballot initiative. They rewrote the language around a ballot initiative that was approved by voters. Obviously, the Dems were not happy with that. They also rewrote some of the rules in terms of gubernatorial power, as well as some of the rules around ballot initiatives for the the Dems came in. Anyway, this thing is continuing to play out in court. I think it affects not only minimum wage, but also paid leave. So, yeah, so employers will have to watch it for that reason. The governor getting involved kind of ups the ante. And the attorney general is already involved, so it's, it's getting sticky up there. Moving up to New Hampshire, Franklin. What's going on in New Hampshire? We've got a conference committee. The House and the Senate are hammering out a minimum wage compromise, and it looks like they may have a breakthrough, which, you know, the governor's still probably going to veto this thing, but, you know, we'll see. So $12 an hour now by 2020. 
it would increase the cash 2022 2022 <clears throat> excuse me thank you and it would increase the cash wage to 540 an hour over that same period so yet again governor's likely to veto it's probably all for not but you know obviously gotta gotta pay attention and what minimum wage report you know this is this is getting to be a weekly edition as well uh what happened with mcdonald's this week yeah i mean it's just literally every week for the past like five weeks the beat, been the beat the goes on literally yeah. the beat down goes on yeah i mean there's a lot of press this week if i if we may just a little backpat you know a lot of headlines this week from bloomberg and from the hill and others that it's now becoming a go-to stop in the democratic presidential so bloomberg campaign. this week saying what we said on this pod four weeks ago that is a must a must do i like that timeline i think a, a reference i made a month ago was that it was like the iowa state fair you had to show up and, and get your head patted and so that's what's happening so it's it's interesting it's it, it, we, we predicted it, it's predictable and it's just playing out week after week after week and I think tomorrow night the the Democrats have either tonight or tomorrow night the Democrats have their big candidate forum in Charleston, South Carolina, and they will have Catfish a Mc- fry. and they will have a McDonald's employee there, and they're going to just use that opportunity to beat on the company some more. It's just yep. it's just out of hand. All right, switching to paid leave and back up in New Hampshire, kind of the same deal again. Done. It's out, dead for the year. It's been stripped out of the budget, so it'll it'll definitely be coming back. And that was the one that people remember that the governors of Vermont and New Hampshire were kind of working together on a bi-state solution. Two Republican governors kind of trying to outmaneuver their both their Democratic legislatures on the issue. And I think expecting a Sununu veto for sure on the whole budget, they just didn't even include it. So dead for the year, but will certainly come back next year, right? Yep. And then our favorite issue, scheduling in Chicago. This is ugly. I mean, this is not unexpected because they've been talking about doing this forever. And uh, the new mayor and the new council made this priority. But it's going to be up for a vote next week. And, you know, the industry is trying to get some tweaks to this. But these guys know this issue. This has been talked about for almost a year now. So I don't know there's going to be a lot of changes. I mean... You know, we hope for a voluntary standby list and some other kind of things, but we'll see what happens. So switching to labor policy, uh, Franklin, up in uh, Minnesota. Yeah, so we mentioned this previously. I don't know if it was last week, a couple weeks ago, but Minnesota has followed Colorado with one of the most aggressive and expansive, and I guess New York and some others. But this session, Colorado and Minnesota are the ones that have passed new, really expansive laws on wage theft. Minnesota is now criminalizing wage theft, so you can go to jail. You know, big, big fines basically put a lot more teeth into it, and they put additional funding behind agencies that enforce wage theft. So, yeah, it's it's a big deal. Um, I expect you're going to see some headhunting up there from, uh, is our good friend, the the Attorney General? Keith Ellison. Oh, yeah. 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 Mr. Keith Ellison is not afraid to earn a headline dragging a corporate brand around. Yeah. So I, you're going to see this gonna, gonna, this is going to put a lot of put a lot of bullets in his gun. So, and speaking of the state with wage theft, uh, New York State. New York State, same thing. Actually, they were on the front edge of this wave some years ago, but they're going back and now potentially revising their wage theft law and adding an employee lien, potentially. That's what the legislation that was passed by the Assembly is now in the Senate. Everyone's familiar with the concept of a lien. You can put a lien on a property when someone owes you money and they won't pay. Now, an employee could put a lien on an employer's property. That's a pretty substantial tool to try to get payment back. And also in New York, New York is like, as other states are all winding down and closing up, New York's just kind of getting started, right? And they had some uh, some big activity this week on the sexual harassment issue. Yeah, and this is pretty common. We're seeing this in other parts of the country. The Assembly and the Senate have passed legislation that would ban non-disclosure agreements related to 
sexual harassment. It's probably in conflict with federal law, but that all remains to be seen and sorted out. It also extends a statute of limitations for reporting to three years. Yet again, these are pretty common components that you're seeing popping up in different jurisdictions. And Frank, on an issue that we've been following out here in California, as we do the pod, this um, this independent contractor issue, Uber, Lyft, there was a little bit of uh, movement this week with the SCIU and Teamsters getting in the game. Yeah, and I have interviewed an Uber and a Lyft driver on the topic this week. One was aware of it, one was not, or one was mildly aware of it, the other was very aware of it. But anyway, um, the SCIU and the Teamsters this week jumped into this conversation, and that's just kind of shows you what the stakes are. I mean, so they're running kind of a fight for 15 type campaign now. It's called Gig Workers Rising, and they're putting a bunch of funding and organizing expertise uh, behind pulling together these drivers to lobby the California legislature to not accept Uber and Lyft's compromise legislation and instead to basically categorize their drivers as employees and the result of that would also be a bunch of other independent contractors will kind of be caught in that net and reclassified as employees. The big deal. It's a really, really big deal. And who knows exactly how it's going to affect franchise law or all the business to business type relationships that could be impacted by this. Well, speaking of big deal and staying in California, just up the coast in San Francisco, some movement this week on the CEO pay tax that we've been following for a while. What happened up there, Franklin? Yeah, and we've been talking about this forever. They have released now their language that they're going to put on the ballot related to the CEO pay tax. And it's kind of a complicated tiering system in terms of how the tax would work. Um, So you you probably will have to go look at that table to get the full info. But it would collect up to uh, basically a 0.6% tax on companies whose CEO pay exceeds median pay for employees by a 600 to 1 ratio or more. So yet again, there's also um, some sort of head tax included in this. Yet again, it's very, very complicated. It goes from points, I think, 1% up to 0.6%. And then there's additional tax that, that is a head tax. So anyway, go look at it. It's San Francisco. So, you know, probably going to be paying this tax. If yeah, you're going to assume you know. this thing's going to pass the ballot. So, and it's and, and one of the reasons they're doing it, well, that what they're doing is the, the, the funds are earmarked to create uh, mental health facilities throughout the city. So those are earmarked funds. So, I mean, the odds of this thing not passing overwhelmingly are pretty small. And how this thing works and if it's, you know, challenged legally or, or not, and this could become a template that is exported. We've seen San Francisco do that on a number of issues now. So this is definitely worth watching. And Franklin, speaking of things that come out of California to be exported across the country, there's some significant uh, activity this week on the packaging front. There certainly was. And we will have some folks on next week that really dive deep into this, some some experts, because this is a huge deal and, and warrants more conversation. But this bill is moving. Moving through the legislature's past, the assembly is now heading into the Senate. It will require all single-use packaging in the state to be recyclable or compostable by 2023. Compostable. And it also sets a recycling rate requirement. So it is expecting that the state hits and, you know, everyone hits certain benchmarks. And that is up to 75% of all single-use plastics are being recycled by 2030. Yeah, but only the state can determine whether there's going to be recycling facilities or not for this stuff to go in. So it's 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 not a, it's a half-baked 
thing at this point. If they don't have the facilities in a place that's recycling, how are they going to hold? I think it's even more complicated than that. It's municipalities too, right? Um, that are they're going to have the the facilities. But certainly, I'm, I have great confidence that the state of California will figure out how to create a regulatory regime that puts fines, penalties, and impetus upon employers, buildings, individuals for their part of the bargain. When I was actually jogging through the hills, they have trash bins here for yard waste. I've never seen that before. You know, we in Florida, we just do it in a bag and put it separate aside, but they have actually bins for yard. So I'm sure they will have some sort of regime related to that, and I'm sure there'll be years of rulemaking. But anyway, we'll have someone in next week that can can tell us all the specifics of that and, and really get deep into it. And and probably talk about Vermont as well. The governor there signed a um, pretty comprehensive packaging bill uh, that basically prohibits retailers from even issuing those single-use plastic bags. And I know a lot of retailers, a lot of groceries are still using those, and a lot of restaurants are delivering food in those single-use plastic bags. No mas. Those things are gone. Plastic you know, stirrers, like coffee stirrers at Starbucks, no more. And then paper bags are still going to be allowed, but there'll be a 10 cent surcharge on each of those. So if brands are not getting serious about this packaging space and are just going to adjust as cities do these things, and cities and states do these things and not get ahead, they are, they are woefully, woefully um, undermining their ability to keep up with the marketplace on this. This, this stuff is going fast and it's going to get out of the blue states here pretty soon and it's going to go mainstream 100 percent. and there's also some other stakeholders in this other than policymakers, customers and press and you know so there's a lot of a lot of different reasons that you should be paying attention to it smart on it and thinking through strategies related to it and and as franklin said we'll have a deep dive uh next week on this podcast on this important and getting even more important issue so franklin you know, our first West Coast podcast is coming to an end here. What do you, what do we think? Should we just move out here and start doing, you know, start doing our work out here? Just move the office? It is tempting. The weather, that these cool evenings are somewhat desirable coming from sweltery Florida this time of year. So it's ironic we're in this area this week. Later today, we're going to be up in Glendale, right out, you know, just a little north of, uh, of Los Angeles. Famous burger chain founded in Glendale, California that turns ironically this week 70 years old Bob's Big Boy what was it like to be around when the first one opened Joe that's very funny Franklin uh, <laughs> very funny uh, great story of the Bob Wine sold his 1936 DeSoto Roadster for 300 bucks to open his first 350 350 dollars a lot of money back then to open his first burger stand Bob's Pantry I think it was called it's phenomenal. Also claimed to fame, Franklin. You remember what movie? Famous scene in a Bob's Big Boy in one of our favorite movies. Yeah. Heat. Where you finally have De Niro and uh, Al Pacino sit down for the first time in the movie face-to-face. They've been chasing each other, looking over their shoulder, each other, all movie. They sit down face-to-face and have a, have a candid conversation, quite like you and I are having today, Joe. Um, well, which one of us is the gangster? And which one of us is the law? Depends on which day. I got you. But yeah, maybe we'll hit old Bob's Big Boy on, uh, in, Gl- in Glendale on the way out of town. It should be uh, it should be a lot of fun. One last note I would say before we break. You know, we talk about public policy. We talk about restaurateurs and elected office. Bob went on to become the mayor of Glendale. He did. That's the type of leadership we need in the industry, Mr. Keefe Offer. Well said, sir. Well said, sir.